if not us. I'm your host, Sarah Ackerman. In this episode of Uniquely American Problems, we're covering the hot topic of misinformation with John Silva, Senior Director of Professional and Community Learning from the News Literacy Project. The News Literacy Project is a nonpartisan education nonprofit that is building a national movement to advance the practice of news literacy throughout American society, creating better informed, more engaged, and more empowered individuals, and ultimately a stronger democracy. We talk about the goals of misinformation, how it hooks you, and how just about everyone is susceptible for falling for a false claim. We also talk about how to navigate the holidays if you're spending time with someone who regularly shares false narratives on social media. And fun fact, that plan does not include confronting them at the dinner table. Let's dive in. So how did you get involved in the field of misinformation? So I have been with the News Literacy Project for a little over five and a half years, but I first started using NLP resources and programs when I was when I taught middle school here in Chicago. This was probably about uh, probably about eight or nine years ago, maybe ten. We were so a colleague of mine and I were were talking about some ways to supplement our social studies curriculum for seventh and eighth graders, and she had gone to a workshop and saw some of what. NLP was doing and thought it was really cool. And so we brought them in. And back then, it wasn't so much about misinformation as it was trying to teach young people just how to be better informed, how to, you know, how to look for credible sources and, you know, bringing current events into our civics curriculum. And so when I saw an opening at NLP, working with them and, and, and doing some of the work, I thought it was a, a really unique opportunity. I think the misinformation piece really connects to the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. I think before the 2016 election and, and the immediate aftermath, I think most people who were doing news literacy or media literacy were focused on you know, being informed, like how does journalism work? How do I find credible information? How can I know what's going on? But with the 2016 election, that's when we started to realize how much misinformation could be weaponized. We saw a lot of outside bad actors influencing things. And then as, as it was a political problem, then the pandemic hit. And then we had a whole new level of misinformation and bad actors. And and in between, you know, we also had measles making a comeback because of anti-vaccine misinformation. And it's really been in the last, you know, now seven years or so, six or seven years, where we're still trying to teach about finding credible information. But we're, we're having to fight through the deluge of misinformation from bad actors and other sources. It's truly a perfect storm of... And I don't want to like say it's the absolute worst it could be, but it's a, a very good storm of different aspects coming together to just exacerbate the issue. I don't want like there to not be another pandemic or another bad thing to happen. And it's like, oh, because we said it was already bad enough. It's great that y'all were already ahead of it of sorts of like trying to educate the students. But then seeing it all, there's a pretty high learning curve of like and put it into practice immediately. We were very fortunate during the pandemic that we already had a significant portfolio of online resources for educators through our Checkology virtual classroom in particular. And so when schools across the country were confronted with remote learning, but also the critical need, you know, to address teaching young people how to sort through all of the noise, 
our resources and our programs were uniquely suited to to be easily adopted and easily implemented. And that's actually when we saw, you know, a major increase in people coming to us and working with us. And so we were very, in that sense, we, yeah, we were ahead of the game a bit and we were, we were very fortunate that we were able to be, you know, the answer in, in the noise for a lot of educators. So what's the future that NLP is trying to create just as an organization? You know, when, when Alan Miller founded the News Literacy Project almost 15 years ago, it was very much a journalism focus, but it was very much focused on young people. Uh, he got the idea, you know, visiting his daughter's middle school and realizing how little the kids knew about journalism, but also how little the teachers kind of knew about how to teach it. And for most of NLP's time since then, we've been focused on educators. But the pandemic and the 2020 election in particular showed us just how important it needs that for this to be a national conversation among all of us about what it means to be informed, what it means to get our information from credible sources, what it means for us to you know, be able to verify information for ourselves and not engage in emotional reasoning because so many people have been manipulated into not just false beliefs, but just dangerous beliefs. You know, people have been taking actions and making decisions that are not in their best interests in a lot of different ways. And so there is a need for us to be having a conversation about what it means to be news literate and you know what it means to be able to rationally evaluate information for ourselves. Because I think that's that's where we have just the most danger, you know, during the pandemic in particular, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people likely died needlessly because they had been manipulated into believing all sorts of falsehoods about the pandemic, about the safety of vaccines, about alternative treatments that were actually dangerous. But we also see in our politics, people who are making, you know, voting decisions that are not in their best interest, or they're being flat out manipulated into voting a certain way, but they've been lied to about what that vote is going to mean. So this is where we are right now, is that unfortunately there are too many bad actors out there and it's very easy to manipulate people who have strong beliefs. And so we need to find ways of improving the situation. So how does misinformation work? Like it's not just an article that someone's going to see and go, oh, I automatically believe that. But how does it sow seeds of doubt? It starts with emotional manipulation. So misinformation usually is designed to elicit some sort of strong emotional response. Literally any emotion can be used against us in this sense. And what happens in our brain is that when we are having a strong emotional response, we're just reacting to it. We're reacting to how it feels to us, right? Does this feel true? Does this feel right? We're not actually thinking about it in a rational way. And that's the first step it is um, that emotional manipulation. And then we have other types of cognitive manipulation. So confirmation bias is very, very powerful in this, in the sense that if I get you to start to believe something, I can show you something that supports it and you'll accept it because it supports it, not because it, not because you've evaluated it. And this is the challenge is that once you're down that path, it's really you're only engaging in emotional reasoning. 
And then eventually, if you if you go really deep into some of these beliefs, you find yourself in a community of believers. The most common example of that are closed Facebook groups, right? Which are just echo chambers of everyone who share this belief. And all that happens in this echo chamber of this community is sharing things and telling each other how right they are and finding new things through motivated reasoning just to, to keep the belief going. And anyone who tries to get in and challenge that, they're, they're rejected. And, and what's important to recognize is that for people who are in that community, that feels good, right? We really like how it feels when other people share that same belief and they're telling us we're right and they're praising us when we share something that reinforces the belief, right? We like that and we don't like it when those beliefs are challenged because this is where the kind of the last component comes in, which is cognitive dissonance, right? If we have fears and anxieties about things, we want to find ways to make that discomfort go away. But also the same way when we're in the belief, we don't like having our beliefs challenged. That doesn't, that doesn't feel good, right? We're going, we're going for the, the feel good, the emotional connection. Because the reality is rational, critical thinking is hard, right? It, it actually takes effort. And if we're being honest with ourselves and being rational, it makes us have to confront uncomfortable things. We might be wrong about something right? We, we may not like something that where we, we've learned something that's happening. So this is where that major difference between the emotional component and the rational component becomes most important because it's very easy to just stick with the comfortable falsehoods. Yeah. And it's really nice to be told you're right and you're smart and anyone else that's disagreeing with you is wrong. Like that feels so good. And especially on the internet where people are usually needlessly cruel it's not a great place. So to be told even online that like, no, you're perfect. That's awesome. That's a very addictive little drug. It is. Are there certain topics that are most, like I know it's coming from an emotional place, but are there certain topics that are most likely to be things that are covered with misinformation? You know, I think one of the trends that we have seen in the last couple of years in particular are sort of false beliefs that are targeting parents and are in some way about the victimization of children. But this goes back to, we can go back even to the debunked and completely false connection between the MMR vaccine and autism. Andrew Wakefield's completely ludicrous research, but people, people latched onto that, right, because of the specter of autism and the fear and anxiety that comes with, you know, being a parent of a young child, like, nobody can tell you what causes it or any of those things. Like that's an uncomfortable thing we have to confront, but somebody comes along and says, Nope, it's actually simple. Right. But with vaccines, vaccine safety, with the pandemic, with mask mandates and, you know, remote learning. And then we see even more with, with political things, with some of the outlandish claims of, about critical race theory and a lot of the sort of mania around book banning and, but also things you know, in more extreme cases, we see things like child sex trafficking for very dark, nefarious reasons. And there is just so much that actually can be traced to trying to target adults and using in some way 
child victims as the emotional manipulation, right? And so when people get into that, right, they really feel empowered that like I am protecting the children, right? I'm a warrior in this fight against evil. Like people, I mean, people use that kind of language in this, right? We're fighting the forces of darkness because we're just trying to protect our children. And the thing is, is like, if you try to challenge that in any way, right? Now you are just one more person who's going after the children. Right. The level set of, we both want kids to be safe. We both want kids to be healthy. This is where I think we might be skewing a little differently in terms of where we're getting our factual information from, but I don't think that they are very apt to think that the first two things are true of you want to protect the children, you want to keep them safe if you're going to disagree on the third thing. Part of it, I think, in many ways, they do believe whatever the danger is, is actually real. And that's a really important thing to remember Like when we're talking about these topics is that the people who are in these spaces to them, it is, it is completely true. It makes as much sense to them as it makes to us that it's not true. And that, that's where like, there's a huge cognitive divide. And that's one of the most difficult things to bridge is that cognitive divide. And so it's really, I mean, you know, my son's almost 13, but I remember when he was a very tiny little human, there were so many things to be scared of and so many things, there were so many different sources. I mean, and, you know, even 12 years ago, you know, before a lot of things really blew up, you know, I remember my, my, uh, my ex-wife, like she, when she was pregnant, there was, she would see random things on the internet that would just scare her to death. And it would, we would have to, you know, I would just have to like, Hey, let's just take a breath on that, you know? But it's like, if you think about those fears and anxieties, it's really easy to get sucked into something where somebody's going to make that go away. Yeah. Is that an easy thing as someone in this professional space? How do you keep a balance? Like trying to both empathize with the folks that are buying into the misinformation without potentially exposing yourself to something that would like hook you in. (laughs) You know, I crack a lot of dark jokes about it, but in, in my work, I spend time nearly every day in the, the deepest, darkest parts of, of social media and the internet. I go places most people aren't even really aware of. So I'm lucky in the sense that I, I, I do have a lot of, because I'm so aware of all of it, I know how, I, I know how ridiculous it can be. I'll, I'll t- so I'll tell this story to kind of illustrate part of it. So last week, my girlfriend invited me to her, uh, her company's Halloween party here in Chicago. And when she came and picked me up, we were driving down there and she said, you're not going to be talking about some of the crazy conspiracy stuff, right? I'm like, yes, probably, maybe. She's like, <laughs> she's like you know, you're the only one that knows most of those things, right? And it's true. And it's something to, to realize is that like, I know more about a lot of this stuff than almost everybody. And I think there's, there's also an important thing to remember in all this, right? Is that I think social media in particular gives these groups a seemingly larger presence than they actually do have, right? Right. Because they're actually a minority. They're very small in numbers, but they are very vocal. One way I've heard it described, I can, I've never been able to find out who originally said this, but somebody once said 100,000 people angry about something on Twitter is the equivalent of 100 people marching outside of City Hall. Oh, because the people who are at the most extreme of some of these beliefs 
they're mostly confined to their echo chambers, but the ones that are out there, they are they they are very prolific. They post over and over and over and over again. So one example, I don't know if it's still around because I got kicked out, but there used to be a, a huge Facebook group called Parents Against Critical Race Theory. It had just thousands of members, maybe even tens of thousands of members at some point. I don't remember. It's been a while since I was in there. But it has, it does look like it is a huge group, right? But when you actually watch the trends, it's really only a couple of dozen people who post with any sort of regularity. And most of them simply comment on the prolific posts of a very small number of people, right? So you have like, let's say 10,000 people in this group. You've got maybe five or six people who like post like consistently every day. They're constantly sharing something to the group. You got maybe five or six people. And then maybe you have 15, 20 people who just love to comment on what other people do. But most everyone else is simply lurking like I was. But I would kind of I would kind of throw things in there every once in a while to try to to try to test some methods for challenging things. And I think I I think I tested one, you know, pushed it one too many times. But it's an echo chamber, right? Because if if you challenge what everyone is saying, eventually you will be kicked out of the group. And I think what I think the thing that got me kicked out was so this was parents against critical race theory. And somebody had posted something like pretty horrific about um, transgender kids. And, 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 and I, I think I simply put a question, like, can someone explain to me what this idea about, you know, we have to fight against, I think it was like transgender athletes. I mean, can somebody explain to me what transgender athletes has to do with fighting critical race theory? Like that was my question that got, I think that's what got me kicked out in the end. Right. But any kind of questioning of the group, you won't find yourself in there. So that's the thing is like, I, I, that's part of what also keeps me grounded is that like, yeah, I know more about almost all of these things and I'm not even in, in, in as deep as some researchers are, but it's also important to remember that like, I have a unique perspective compared to a lot of people. And so most people haven't heard about it. I can be a lot of fun at parties talking about all kinds of crazy things, but I, there's a point where people are like, okay, you're, you're, you, that's, you just went a little too far on that one. <laughs> I could imagine that the the things that you have seen would equally horrify and entertain people, which makes for good party fodder. So in terms of legality, are there any laws working against misinformation? Who is liable if it can be proven to be untrue? Yeah, that's so that's the really sticky part. So there are libel and slander laws, but in order to be able to, to use legal means in that sense, you, know, you have to prove that there was some in, intent to harm your, your reputation or your good name, so to speak, right? And there's some significant bars that you have to reach, right? You have to prove, one, that they knew it wasn't true, which a lot of people who believe this stuff, they actually believe it. And then you, you have to be able to prove that they intended to do you harm. And so this is why it's so difficult for legal means. But also, there is an important distinction between speech and action you know, where, where we have to get into some first amendment conversations, you know? So, you know, the classic example, you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater. One of the most important things about that, that I don't think most people think about is that like, if I shout fire in a crowded movie theater, I'm not expressing a viewpoint, right? I'm not engaging in speech. I'm giving a verbal alarm, right? The purpose of that verbal alarm is to cause people to take an action. Right. So there's a difference between speech 
where I am expressing my views and speech that could lead people to take some sort of an action, right? And so if I'm just out here on the corner with my bullhorn and I am just shouting for people that the earth is flat, right, then that's protected speech. And it doesn't matter what my platform is. But if I'm using whatever my platform and I'm saying the world is flat and we should all gather tomorrow morning with torches and explosives and destroy NASA headquarters, right? If I'm, if I'm trying to advocate for an action, that's where there could be some consequences. Yeah. Do you think that the recent ruling against Alex Jones and the misinformation surrounding the victims of Sandy Hook will have any sort of lasting impact on how misinformation is handled? Unfortunately, I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. I think it does set an important legal precedent in, in this general field. But, you know, Alex Jones is still on his airwaves, defiantly shouting his beliefs. And he still has, you know, a legion of supporters. I mean, people are you know, people are actually buying his products still and, and giving him money. And the beliefs that he sort of started and, and expanded and, and a lot of those things, they people continue to believe them. I mean, there's a number, there's a number of studies out that show that, that people genuinely believe that none of the mass shootings that have happened since Sandy Hook were actually happened. They believe that they were false flag operations and had involved crisis actors. And so I wish I could say that it would make a difference, but unfortunately I think there are just too many people who see that lawsuit as just another piece of evidence to show that Alex Jones is right because, you know, the government is trying to suppress the truth, right? You know, they're, they're coming after him because they don't want the truth to come out, right? Because it's that, it's that motivated reasoning to continually support the belief because, you know, if you think about it, imagine how difficult it would, it would have to be for these people to confront the reality that they have been, harassing and intimidating and making the lives of people whose children had been brutally murdered, that they were responsible for immense pain and suffering because they were advocating for this. And then they were, because they, and they were, imagine how difficult psychologically it will have to be for someone to confront what they had done and acknowledge their role in that. And then try to move on from that. You know, it, it would be, incredibly painful for people. And so you can imagine why so many of them just refuse to confront that. It seems like the bigger the emotional burden it would be to confront the truth or the wrongdoing, the more folks are going to just double down. That is a huge, that is a major part of it. Right. But it's also, it's also, we don't, we don't often think of it this way, but at some point it becomes your identity. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And in all of the ways that we think about identity, changing our identity is, is incredibly difficult, right? And so when you have internalized a belief to the point where that's how you identify yourself, that's when you're almost, almost too far gone to come back from it. And you know, we see that with people who are deep into their political beliefs, deep into social beliefs, all those things. And changing your identity, not easy. No. So what are some things that people can do just on a day-to-day basis to guard against misinformation? Just folks that are casually on social media and think they have a good grasp on things, but just to fortify their resources. Um, I think we should always try to be aware of our emotions when we're scrolling, right? We have to remember that as we're scrolling through social media, 
the longer we are scrolling, the more passive we are. And in that passive scrolling, we could be manipulated emotionally pretty easily. So being aware of our emotions and not just hitting like or comment or retreat without really considering it, that's really important. Right? So if, and if something seems too good to be true, it might not be, right? But also we need to start practicing the habit of verifying things before we share. It's really for us to remember that this is our reputation online, right? This is our reputation to the people who follow us, the people who know us, right? And so you have to be aware that if you share something and that turns out to be false, right, then your reputation has taken a hit. So it's really important to just practice a simple Google search, you know? Just take 20, 30 seconds and verify something. And the reality is, like, for a lot of stuff that's out there, you can verify whether or not something is factual within about 30 seconds. And so that's a big part of it. And I think the other thing, which is probably a little bit more difficult, is I think we need to just try to break the habit of passive scrolling in general. Like, I think we've just, we've a lot of us have just sort of gotten to where we just will open Twitter, we'll open TikTok, we'll just, and we'll just let it wash over us. And, you know, while it's, it can be a good way to waste some time, you know, you don't really know what you're kind of taking in passively as you're doing that. So I think, I think we could all use a little bit of a, a little bit of a break from passive social media scrolling. Be more, be more deliberate about it. Yeah. Be more intentional with your use. I think that's a very reasonable ask, but then when you've been scrolling on Twitter for 15 minutes and you can't remember the last thing you like actually consumed, you're like, oh, oops. I, one of the few things I like about the way TikTok is built, um, and I wish they would, I wish this would pop up a little bit more, but you know, if the longer you scroll through TikTok, eventually something is going to pop up on TikTok that's like, hey, you've been here for a while. <laughs> it's like, you, you, are you okay? You good? I wish our phones could do more of that, you know? One thing, we're, one thing we've been recommending to people is like, you know, on iPhone, you can sort of look at your screen time. I think we, sh- we should all take a moment and kind of look at that and, and really consider how much time we're spending on some of these apps because, you know, it's not all that healthy in, in a lot of important ways. So being, yeah, being intentional, like it, that's a great word uh, to describe it. Yeah. Uh, so with the upcoming holiday season, this is the prime time for family, friends to gather. And generally speaking, it's the, the prime time for less than ideal conversations. So if you know of a friend or family member that's like sharing stuff that isn't factually true, not just isn't something you agree with, but would be considered misinformation, can you do anything? Can you say anything? How do you not kind of alert their senses of their being attacked? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, you can. So I'm going to preface this with the Thanksgiving dinner table is probably not the best place to have this kind of conversation because if you're going to talk to somebody and, and you want to actually have a, a, a real conversation about what they believe, the best way to do it is, is one-on-one where you can control, you can control the, the conversation in some way, right? The larger the group, the more likely it is that somebody else can chime in and, and derail it. So, so basically, we use the acronym PEP which is patience, empathy, and persistence, right? So we have to remember that it's going to take time to have this kind of conversation. You know, people didn't just 
fallen into this belief after like you know, and you said earlier like just like one facebook post right so having a conversation with them is going to take time we have to recognize that to them this is this is true this is factual this is a genuine belief to them and so we have to approach it from the perspective that like we're going to have a conversation about this. I'm not going to lecture you and tell you you're wrong, right? You're not going to lecture me and tell me I'm wrong, but we're going to try to engage in discourse where we're going to try to look at each other's perspectives. We're going to look at the information we both have, and we're going to have a conversation about that and try to come to a common understanding. And so, you know, that's where the kind of the persistence comes in. You, you may have to have this conversation more than once. So I think it's important if somebody wants to talk about those things at the dinner table, right, it's Thanksgiving dinner and somebody, you know, somebody brings up a topic, I think your best bet is to say, you know, that's really interesting. Do you think you and I could talk about that one on, you know, do you think you and I could talk more about that later, right? And please pass the potatoes. You know, it's like... <laughs> Immediate redirect. Yeah, it, it's because, you know, nobody wants, the nobody really wants the conflict. I'm like, I won't say nobody. There are probably going to be some folks at the dinner table who are going to erase things because they're trying to they're trying to pick a fight or they're trying to bring up old things, right? But if somebody's trying to engage you or something you, that you feel is important, try to redirect it and say, you know, maybe maybe we could talk about that after dinner. Maybe we could talk about that. You and me, we can talk about. I would like to talk to you about that. And you know, you're genuinely signaling to them that you're interested in it, but you want to have a conversation. And you know, you can't use any kind of negative emotion towards it, right? If the person you're talking to feel like that they're being attacked or if you, you're mocking them or calling them stupid, they're just not going to, they're not going to listen to you. Because I think for a lot of folks, somewhere in there is the recognition that what they believe is not socially acceptable to the, you know, to the majority of people. They, I think they know that there, there, there is a certain amount of discomfort that like what they believe is, is not going to be well received. And I think with that, they may not be aware of it, but I think they do want to find a way out. And there needs to be a way for them to be able to salvage their reputation on the way out of it, right? I think that we need to, when we have these conversations, it's important to find a way to lead them to the factual information. And also in a way to help them understand that they were probably manipulated into that belief to begin with. Yeah. And that manipulation doesn't mean they're dumb or stupid or a bad person. Right. It's kind of the way the world works. Yes. Any, any of us can, any of us, regardless of mm -hmm. our education level, regardless of our, where we live, our median income, whatever, anyone can be manipulated into these beliefs. Yeah. If you could magically snap your fingers and have one major thing change in the world of misinformation, aside from it just not existing, which would be great, uh, what would that be? <laughs> Oh man. So I, I, I will say two, I'll, I'll also give you two things. One, if I could just sort of make everyone acutely aware of, aware of confirmation bias and being aware of that and being resistant to it, I think, I think that would be one thing. But if I could make a more practical change, I would love to make it more difficult for people to share what other people have posted on social media. So for example, like if, if a tweet shows up on my feed, I shouldn't be able to hit retweet right away, right away. Right. Shouldn't be, there shouldn't be in the, there should be, there should be some sort of a pause, but like 
I think that one of the things that makes so, misinformation go viral is that it is so easy to share other people's content. And so I, if I could find a way to mitigate how easy it is to share other people's content, just make it more difficult. Get rid of the retweet function altogether, right? Make it make it so that somebody has to take more steps to more deliberately share. And that's not to say that the platforms are to blame, but I think that's one of the things is that it's just so easy for people to share things in the moment when they're reacting to it. Mm-hmm. I think along those lines, if someone is sharing that, if they have to go through the steps of sharing it themselves instead of just a simple retweet, it also hopefully would make them feel more accountability for what they're sharing. And in that moment, pause and think like, is this what, to your point earlier of reputation, is this what I want to stake my reputation on? Because if you're just retweeting, who cares? It's somebody else. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, you know, Twitter did take a step a while back with the, um, like, if, if it's an article and you go to retweet it, like, did you, do you want to read this first? Yeah. If there's a link. I would take that a step further and, and say you can't retweet it until you click and read the article. Because that's the that's one of the other big challenges is how many people are informing themselves about whatever the article is based only on the headline and the image and the lead and not the actual content of the article. Yeah. So in your journey through all of misinformation, both when you were teaching middle school and now with News Literacy Project, is there any advice you would give to yourself, your younger self? before you started on this journey? Well, I actually wasn't so young when I started into education. I had been working in corporate telecommunications for a number of years. I actually started teaching when I was uh, 33. So I don't know how much advice I would give 33-year-old me when I, when I started doing that. But I think if I could go back and talk to my my young my younger teacher self, I think I would have, I would, I would have found a way to talk about some of these topics with my students before I did, you know, when that, that, that first group of middle schoolers. And I think I would, I would try to encourage him to, to advocate more for the, you know, including this, because I think this is one of the, one of the reasons we are, we are where we are is that, so I'll back up a second. So when I graduated high school, my senior year, this was 1989, that was the first year that, San Diego schools required some sort of computer literacy, you know, very, very early, you know, pre, pre, really kind of pre-internet and certainly pre-social media. But I didn't have to take it. I didn't really learn how to use a computer for several years in, in any meaningful way. And so if you think about a lot of adults, like they never actually had formal instruction for evaluating information online. And there's also a disconnect where we have this pervasive myth that young people are digital natives, right? That somehow young people are just born with the ability to use technology. And so I think this is one of the big problems is that like, I think I would have, I would tell my younger teacher self to, to talk more about evaluating information online. You know, we, back then we were still focused on like sort of traditional evaluating primary sources and, you know, research databases and academic journals and such. We didn't spend much, as much time about online sources. And so I think this is, we're seeing the results of, of the generational divide where people are just, they don't know how to evaluate the credibility of sources online. They, they just accept it because, you know, you actually can't believe everything you read on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, so what can our listeners do to support your work at News Literacy Project? I think one of the most important things that, that you can do is, first off, if you are an educator or you know somebody who is an educator, please um, send them our website, newslit.org, right? We, our primary mission is still working with educators and, you know, we're all over the country and we'd like, you know, we obviously want to work with as many educators as we can, especially middle school teachers and, and librarians in particular. But um, otherwise, I think you should also go to our website and check out some of the resources we have where you can learn how to, how to be news literate yourself. We have a number of resources where you can you can learn some of these skills. We have we have a new platform called RumorGuard where you can see how we are debunking viral misinformation. But an important aspect of it is not just the fact check. You can actually learn the methodology behind fact checking. You can actually see the the important questions that you need to ask, right? And so by by learning through RumorGuard, you can actually learn how to ask those questions yourself, and then you know, follow us on social media and be advocates for, for news literacy and prioritizing credible sources because we have to model this. Modeling is and always will be one of the most effective teaching strategies. So if we learn how to do this and we model this for others, we can show other people how to practice good news literacy habits. John Silva and the News Literacy Project. Check out the show notes for all of their links and see how you can support their cause. I also want to say thank you to our incredible editor, Shay Dominguez, and our producing organization, Media Cause, a digital marketing agency specializing in moving missions forward for nonprofits and cause-based organizations. See their impact at mediacause.org. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop by ifnotus.tv if you have suggestions on guests or topics we should cover in the future. Until next time, remember, change belongs to everyone. Music